Dreams are quite a fascinating part of our shared human experience together. Our good God created us to have these wonderful dreams every night as we sleep. Some nights we remember, some dreams soon forgotten. But rarely do these fanciful experiences ever come true. Now to be clear, God does not speak through dreams anymore. Occasionally, God would speak through dreams in times past, and these dreams were divine, authoritative messages. The author of Hebrews, however, reminds us that in these final days, the days you and I live, that God has spoken through his son and the apostolic witness about Jesus Christ. For Joseph, dreams were a part of everyday life. After all, his brothers nicknamed him the dreamer. But it wasn't a term of honor that they gave him, but rather of derision. As Genesis chapter 37 verse 8 records, that his brothers hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Last week we began the final section of the book of Genesis, stretching from chapter 37 all the way to the end of the book. We were introduced to a new character, Joseph. The story is narrowed from all of humanity to focus on a single family, the family of Abraham. Through Abraham's family, God promised that he would establish his kingdom on earth by restoring what was lost in Eden and gathering his people, redeeming them through a promised seed, a promised child that would come from the ancestors of Abraham. As we trace this theme of the promised seed, of Genesis 3.15 through the book of Genesis, we find that God would fulfill His promise through one of the sons of Jacob. As Genesis concludes with the revelation that one particular son of Jacob would be the heir of this promised seed. His name is Judah. But before we get to the end, we're still in the midst of the Joseph narrative. We learned last week that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. But this favoritism has led to a steep divide among Jacob's 12 other sons. So much strife in the family, this promised family, that the brothers sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But the Lord, in the midst of their sin and rebellion, was sovereignly orchestrating these particular events for a greater purpose. purpose. Namely, the preservation of Jacob and his family. God was meticulous in his sovereign care over the promised seed. But preservation was not only the goal. You see, before the nation of Israel could reconcile the world to God, which was really the purpose of the nation, they themselves had to be reconciled with one another. Before they could be the light to the nations, they themselves had to become light God had to save them from the civil war within their own home. And last week we left off with Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers to Potiphar's house. Where God continued to be with him and bless him. But then Joseph was arrested. Imprisoned because of false accusations against him. Leveraged by Potiphar's wife. The favorite son had become the most despised in all of Jacob's family. Once was a title of reproach, the dreamer would become the means God used 
to deliver his people for his glory. Friends, we consider this morning Genesis chapter 40 and 41. The narrative is quite long. Therefore, I'm not going to spend time reading the whole thing. This is why you must read ahead before coming to be served well. If you did not read ahead, I'll help you by summarizing and pointing to particular uh, important portions and try to bring us then to some application. But I've got one overarching point that I want to stress throughout chapter 40 and 41. Here it is. As one righteous man, Joseph, suffered injustice to save the world from famine, so one righteous man, Jesus, suffered eternal justice to save the world from sin. What we see in the life of Joseph in chapter 40 and 41 is a type of Jesus Christ. The way God saves in the Old Testament is the same way God would save the world through Jesus Christ. We see a prototype of what God is going to do. God saves for his glory through judgment. This is how God does it. How God has always done it. And will continue for our glory. Sidney Gradernus summarizes our text in this way. Our sovereign God exalts his suffering servant to kingship. To save the world. Friends, that theme is the theme of the Bible. Where God exalts his suffering servant to be king to save the world. So this morning, I want us to be encouraged to patiently wait. To patiently entrust ourselves to the goodness of God. His ways are good because he is a good God. Even if we are to suffer for him. So this morning, I want us to see a a very familiar theme in the Bible. And the theme is this. Humiliation, then exaltation. In other words, you could say it this way. Suffering, then glory. First, in chapter 40, we see the Lord's suffering servant. And then in chapter 41, we see him being exalted to kingship. First, humiliation, then exaltation. Well, let's consider here in chapter 40, our God's suffering servant. Joseph suffering at the hand of a sovereign God. The narrator begins chapter 40 by setting the context for us. He's demonstrating continuity between the previous story and our passage this morning. The last we heard of Joseph, he has been locked away into prison, forgotten by his family, imprisoned by false accusations, left for dead by his brothers, traded away like one of the the sheep of the family flock. Joseph suffered injustice after injustice after injustice. Even as chapter 40 unfolds, we see Joseph suffering again unjustly as he is forgotten by the cupbearer. Well, look with me at the details given in verses 1 through 4, because they really just set up the whole scene. Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. 
And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Well, continuing the theme of God's divine sovereignty from the previous chapter, we are told that the Lord is remaining with Joseph, that he's making him prosper even in prison. Two new characters are introduced to us in this text, uh, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker of of Pharaoh. We are told in verse 1 that these two men have committed some unnamed crime against Pharaoh. We're not sure what they've done, but they've done something so heinous as to be locked away and imprisoned. And it is no mere coincidence that they are assigned to Joseph to care for him. Joseph will attend them and care for them and be in a position to not only hear about their dreams that they're going to have, but also give their interpretation, a divine revelation. Well, in verses 5 through 19 in your Bible, if you just sort of have your Bibles open, in verses 5 through 19, we are told that these two men, the cupbearer and the baker, have dreams one night. So much so that these two men are unsettled by the dreams they they're unsettled not so much by their content but by the fact they don't understand them it is something quite frustrating when you have a dream and you're wondering what does this mean what has happened to me what they eat something wrong last night what is what is going on and so after their restless night of sleep joseph sort of takes note of them in the morning and notices their face is sort of downcast. They, they seem sort of glim. Something's wrong with them. They're distraught because no one can interpret their dreams. But, but it's so amazing to see God's providence in the midst of this, that Joseph is just the right man for the job. He's the only God-fearer in all the land. And it's because of his unique relationship with the Lord that we, he will be given the ability to interpret these dreams. We'll look here in verse 8. Joseph attributes the prophecy and fulfillment entirely to the Lord. Joseph here is not proudly saying, hey, I'm, a, I'm the dreamer. I, can, I, I know how to interpret dreams. Notice what he says here in verse 8. It's a very different character than the one we saw in chapter 37. They said to him, we've had dreams and there's none to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Joseph is making a theological point to these men that he could, you know, take some educated guesses. Well, I think it means this or I think it means that. No, Joseph boldly declares the meaning of these dreams. There is no speculation for if Joseph would be speculative, it would be no mere It would be nothing more than fortune telling. But the fact that these dreams come true really prove to us as the reader that the Lord is with Joseph wherever he goes. Well, in verses 9 through 19, uh, the chief cupbearer and the baker uh, reveal their dreams to Joseph. They kind of share the details and Joseph follows up by giving an interpretation. The cupbearer goes first. He receives a real quite favorable interpretation. He's going to be restored. The baker, however, he hears the dreadful words, you're going to die. Joseph begins by 
helping the cupbearer understand his dream. And essentially it means that in three days the king is going to restore the cupbearer to his position. A very notable position, right? A cupbearer would have been the one responsible to make sure that Pharaoh wouldn't have been poisoned. Of course, the baker similarly would have had a very important role to make sure that the Pharaoh would have had food that would not have killed him, but would have satisfied his appetite. Because the cupbearer had such an influential role in the court of Pharaoh, Joseph takes this as an opportunity of saying, hey, don't forget me. When you're restored in three days, hey, could you like share with Pharaoh what's happened to me? Notice what he says here. Then Joseph, in verse 12, um, excuse me, verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. And notice his argument, verse 15. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. In other words, he says, I have been treated unjustly again and again. I have been wronged. Will you plead the case before Pharaoh, who seems to be a just ruler? You see, every king wants to be and establish a just kingdom. If not, there's anarchy, chaos ensues. And so what he hopes here is that Pharaoh will hear the story about Joseph and perhaps have mercy and restore him. Well, as the story unfolds, regretfully, the cupbearer, we are told, forgets Joseph. He forgets the act of grace. I want you to notice something about something that Joseph does here. Notice that Joseph doesn't demand a hearing with Pharaoh before interpreting the dream. Now, naturally, one would want to leverage, right? If you had secret knowledge, only you knew it, and you wanted a hearing before Pharaoh, you would have said, hey, look, I know what this dream means, but I'm not going to tell you until you take me to Pharaoh and allow me to plead. Then I, right? He doesn't leverage at all. Why? I think we're meant to understand that Joseph is trusting the Lord in the midst of this season. Friend, the Lord was the one who gave the dreams and the Lord was the one who gave Joseph the power to interpret the dreams. Well, in verse 16, we're told that the baker had a sense of a newfound joy, having heard the favorable interpretation from Joseph concerning the cupbearer. He gladfully shares the details of his own dream. However, he is met with an unfavorable interpretation. As Joseph prophesies in verses 18 and 19, that the baker himself will be executed in three days for his crimes. Well, as the chapter concludes then in verses 20 and 23, we're told really the point of the story isn't so much that these two men have dreams and Joseph gives them some interpretation. Moses really doesn't care for the reader to have much concern about the fate of these two men. Save a couple points. The primary point of the story is that Joseph not only has the ability to interpret dreams, but that that interpretation comes true. 
We are told in verses 20 through 23 that the cupbearer is restored and the baker is executed. The fulfillment of these dreams confirms what we already suspected. That the Lord is with Joseph wherever he goes. Even as he is locked away in prison. That God's purposes have not been stopped because of some prison bars. No, those prison bars could not keep the Lord out. Well, sadly, the scene sort of ends with the cupbearer restored and Joseph forgotten. Two years will go by before we really ever hear from again in chapter 42. But how are we to understand this story? As we think about this story, not only in its original context, but in the context of the book of Genesis, in the context of the Old Testament, really the context of the whole Bible. How, How does this fit within the larger story of the Scriptures? Friends, I again just want to emphasize the point of suffering, then comes exaltation. Humiliation and suffering leads to God's sovereign exaltation. God uses the sufferings of Joseph to bring about the ultimate salvation of Israel. The righteous suffer reproach in a fallen world. Similarly, God would later in the Exodus, the first readers of this book, use their sufferings as a nation as they themselves, like Joseph, were enslaved in Egypt, suffering injustice after injustice, desiring to be set free, desiring for Pharaoh to hear their case and let them go, God would use their deliverance from slavery and captivity and deliver them into a new kingdom. Friends, this sort of pattern of suffering, then exaltation, is a pattern we see continue all throughout the Old Testament and into the New. One would be amiss to forget Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who regularly suffered terribly because of his righteousness. One could not neglect Isaiah's prophecy. Of the Lord's anointed in Isaiah 53. The promised Messiah, Isaiah says, would be known as a man of suffering. Isaiah describes him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He would suffer reproach not for his own sins but for the sins of God's people. Of course, as the New Testament unfolds, Jesus himself is this suffering servant. He suffered injustice so that the guilty could go free. And so in this way is the way of those who follow the Lord. Jesus himself taught his disciples, remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Brothers and sisters, let me just remind you that you will suffer in this world for righteousness. In a fallen world, righteousness begets suffering. Peter was an example of one who suffered for righteousness. You'll recall Jesus in the end of John's gospel told Peter that he would suffer for for his faith. 
The Lord told him that he would be martyred because of his faith in Christ. And this would allow him to teach the church in 1 Peter that we are to suffer. A number of examples of this in 1 Peter chapter 3. For it's better to suffer for good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Or in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Or finally, in chapter 5, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. You see, suffering, then comes glory. Humiliation, then exaltation. Brothers and sisters, again and again, Peter said it was God's will that you would suffer. If you suffer, God's hand is the one behind it. The point of chapter 40 is that God's behind Joseph in prison. God himself enslaved Joseph. God himself imprisoned Joseph. God himself will raise Joseph to power and prominence that he might save. Let us see the goodness of God even in the midst of suffering. God is good even when we suffer. Friend, do you believe that? You see, the enemy is tempting you to doubt God's goodness when you are in pain, when you are hurting, when you face the infliction of a broken world. The, the enemy is tempting you to doubt the goodness of God. But this story tells us that he uses the suffering of Joseph and ours to bring about his good purposes. Friend, have you ever wondered why God doesn't instantaneously save us? Why didn't God in the Old Testament just speak a word and deliver the nation of Israel right into the promised land? Why all the suffering? Why the 400 years of slavery in Egypt? Why didn't he just say, the promised land is yours, poof, be gone all the nations, here it is. But why doesn't God send us right to heaven the moment we believe? Why is it just instantaneous? Surely God has the power. Surely God is all powerful and could do these things, but he doesn't. Because this is not who our God is. In the New Testament, Paul often describes salvation from three perspectives. A past a present and a future perspective. That we are saved, sort of past tense, complete, final. We are being saved, a present progressive sense that, that there is a work being done in us. And a future sense that we will be saved, that we're not yet saved. Why does he do this? Because of this same point we see in chapter 40. That salvation is the work of God. Over a period of time so that he would display his glory through the transforming power of the gospel. You see, if God just instantaneously saved, no one would get to see God's glory on display. We wouldn't know of the story of Joseph if God just instantaneously saved Abraham and his family. But we have this record written down for us to know about God's glory through suffering. 
Friends, patient suffering is part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For our Savior patiently suffered for our sins. We must not find it strange as Christians to suffer in a fallen world. Friend, if you just open your eyes a little bit about our world, and I mean like the context in which you find yourself this morning, in America, in this country, we're not anywhere else, we're, you live in this country. This country is suffering adverse, meaning no one in our culture celebrates suffering. False teachers do not celebrate suffering. Our world does not want to feel pain. This is why people drink and eat themselves to death. Because they don't want to feel pain. This is why people have needles hanging out of their arms. Because they don't want to feel pain. But brothers and sisters, those are not the remedy to living in a fallen world. Rather, we must see that suffering is a means that our sovereign God uses to shape us into the image of His Son. I notated earlier in chapter 40 where I said Joseph sounds a little different here. The Joseph of chapter 37 through the injustices that he suffered was being shaped by God into the leader he needed him to be. Jesus told us in Revelation chapter Two in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And after 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, he says. And what results? And I will give you the crown of life. You see, humiliation, then exaltation. We are not promised exaltation in this life. Jesus never promised us glory in this life. Friends, it takes tremendous faith and patience to trust the Lord's purposes as good. Friend, are you struggling to find his purposes as good? Learn to entrust yourself even in the midst, in the midst of suffering. Righteous Joseph suffered injustice so that the Lord could use that vessel to bring about the salvation of the world. Well, as our story unfolds, we see this grand transformation, something that only God could do as Joseph becomes the exalted king. Well, let's consider next in chapter 40 how God takes his humble, suffering servant and raises him from the pit of despair to the palace of his glory. Let's look here at chapter 41. As the story continues to unfold, we are told that Pharaoh himself is plagued by some unsettling dreams. Uh, look there at chapter 41 and verse 8. Chapter 41, verse 8. Moses writes, So in the morning, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Like the cupbearer and... The baker before, there was no one to interpret, which led to this unsettling behavior. 
Friends, it is important as we think about these dreams to remember who these dreams were from. These men weren't just having dreams uh, isolated upon. These are from God. These are revelation from God to confirm his unfolding purposes to save. While to us these dreams might seem quite easy to interpret, I mean, seven cows being eaten up by seven ugly cows and seven, I mean, kind of doesn't take a rocket science to figure this out. God was blinding the eyes of all those in Egypt, even Pharaoh himself, so that Joseph was the only one who could save. God was making it so that salvation would be through one and one only. The Lord himself would be the one who would give the interpretation. Well, to summarize a bit of Pharaoh's dreams, it it's really could be summarized. He has these dreams. The first dream he has, there's these seven healthy, nice-looking cows, good Egyptian cattle, that come and are eaten up by seven gross, ugly-looking cattle. They come and just gobble them up. Well, this was followed up by yet a second dream. Seven healthy plants, ears of corn perhaps, were eaten up by seven ugly plants. So you've got seven good and seven bad. And this to Pharaoh was quite troubling. So the so-called God, Pharaoh, doesn't seem to be so godlike anymore as he's unable to understand these. God brings the dreams, but he doesn't give the ability to interpret them. But just in the nick of time, we are told in verses 9 through 13 that the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Oh man, I forgot that guy. It's been two years. Joseph's been rotting away and finally God gives him remembrance and he runs to Pharaoh and he, and he says, Pharaoh, there's a guy in your prison just down the block that, that's in your jailhouse and he told me everything about my dreams. And he recounts about his time with Joseph and how Joseph gave him a correct interpretation. Again, it's not that Joseph has the ability to interpret like some fortune teller, but that his interpretations come true. And so in verses 14 through 24, here comes the dreamer again. We're told that Joseph is summoned to Pharaoh's court so that he can give the interpretation. Once present before Pharaoh, Joseph would hear the dreams and then give an interpretation. Again, we don't have time to read through them. It's just sort of a repetition. Pharaoh tells the story again so that Joseph can uh, hear it and then give interpretation. But, but one thing I want you to see is that Joseph is unflinching in his trust in the Lord before Pharaoh. Joseph, that man who who wanted to hear, have a hearing before Pharaoh. He doesn't come pleading his case, but he stands unflinching. And notice what he says. A number of things he says as he comes before him. He says, look, this is, I, I can give you the interpretation, but here's the deal, Pharaoh. What I'm about to say is from God and God alone. And in other words, what he's saying is my message is an authoritative message. And my message is from God alone. So if you look here in your Bibles in chapter 41, I want to just point them out to you. Three times Joseph emphasizes this point. First in verse 25. As Joseph gives the interpretation of the dreams beginning in verse 25, this is what he says to Pharaoh. The dreams 
of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Again, in verse 28, there at the end of the page, it is I, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then again in verse 32, he emphasizes this point again. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, right? He had two dreams, one about cows, one about, about plants. This thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. God was working through Joseph to bring about the salvation of the world through famine. He makes this explicit as he makes those three points. God is about to do. He will do it. God is the one who is doing this work. He's going to bring plenty, and he's going to bring famine. God was behind the whole thing. The seven years of plenty was the Lord's blessing upon the nation of, of Egypt. The, the seven years of famine was the Lord's curse upon the land. This is further confirmed by Joseph as he says that this thing is fixed by God. God is the one that is doing it. Well, Joseph concludes his interpretation of the dream in verse 36 by making the goal of God's future work in evidently clear look there in verse 36 the food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of egypt so that the lord or the land so that the land may not perish through famine see the point of it was so that god would save the land this land of egypt so that other people that would be in this land namely the people of israel would also be saved well, in a bizarre turn of events, we are told after Joseph gives this sort of favorable interpretation of the dreams that he's re- he's not just like patted on the back like, man, thanks, Joseph. That was a good thank you for that. We really appreciate you. Uh, but you've got some work to do back in the uh, in the prison. No, in just a strange turn of events and really the end of the, the chapter all the way to the end, we are told that Joseph. This, this slave boy that's been enslaved for years in Pharaoh's uh, prison is, is risen to power and prominence so much that he's exalted to the second in command of all of Egypt. Who would have expected that in that morning, as Joseph got up to brush his teeth and to take care of all the, all the folks there in the prison, as he attended them as a, as a slave, even in prison, that by, the, by noontime, he would be in such power and such authority over the land of Egypt, but that no one save Pharaoh was greater than him. And to further assimilate Joseph into Egyptian culture, he is given the, the, the daughter of one of the great priests of the land of Egypt. Joseph not only has a title, but he is fully immersed into the life so much that we are told that he has two children. He's no longer a Hebrew, but now fully engulfed in what it means to be a ruler over the Egyptian people. Friend, only the Lord could have done this. Only the Lord could have worked through his servant. The Lord was truly with Joseph wherever he went. Notice how Pharaoh evaluates and describes Joseph if you look here, he, he says to him, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? 
Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. And if you know your Bibles well, this is like Daniel after him. Faithfulness to the Lord in a difficult situation and in a foreign land is used by God to bring about blessing not only to the people, but to salvation. Friend, it's a reminder to all who suffer injustice to entrust ourselves to God who is just and who will bring about his purposes. Well, as the story continues, we are told that Joseph's plan works. The saving up of grain for seven years in the the years of plenty allowed then for them to have a storehouse to feed for the seven years of famine that were to follow. Fourteen years Joseph serves as ruler over Israel. All of this was meant to save not only the Egyptians, but as we'll see next week, to save the Israelites themselves. God was the one who was at work. As Joseph will later tell his brothers in Genesis 45. And now, do not be distressed or angry angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Listen, and God sent me. Before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God took his suffering servant and exalted him to kingship in order to save his promised people. God would do this again and again as he took his suffering servant Moses and raised him to exaltation. So much so that Moses' face glowed with glory. God would do this again and again through the nation of Israel, so much so that he would send his only son in humiliation and suffering that he might exalt him to glory. Jesus himself followed this well-driven path, a a familiar path, a similar path. From the dungeon of death to resurrected glory, God exalted his suffering servant, Jesus, to kingship. Where Jesus would sit in glory, but, but before glory would have to come, humiliation. Paul describes it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on a form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. First suffering. Then, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God saves through his suffering servant for his glory alone. And one day we are told that all the earth will come together to this son of Jacob, Jesus Christ. 
and every knee will bow before him. As every knee bowed before Joseph, so every knee will bow before King Jesus. Friend, the only way to be saved is by submitting your whole life. The only way the Egyptians, the only way Jacob's sons could be saved by bowing their knee to King Joseph. So the only way you can be saved is by submitting your whole life to King Jesus. Either you continue to be king of your life or Jesus is king. There's really only two choices, two ways to live. If Jesus is your king, then you must bow to the good pleasures of his father. You must submit yourself to his will and his will alone. And brothers and sisters, let you be encouraged that when you submit your life to King Jesus, you are submitting yourself to a risen and exalted king who reigns over all the earth. Patiently entrust yourself to him. Know that Jesus is in control of this world. Do not fret over temporal things. Friends, God is not so concerned about the power brokers of this world. He is not worried in heaven, biting his nails nervously, wondering who the next president of the United States is. His plans will not be stopped. His will will be done. And frankly and honestly, I believe God has some bigger plans in store for this world than what goes on down at the White House. Because one day our king is coming and whoever occupies these little thrones on earth, well, they're going to bow their knees to King Jesus. Bishop Hugh Latimer regularly preached before the king of England. On one such occasion, as he was preaching before King Henry VIII, Latimer said, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. The king of England is here. Later, in the sermon, he would conclude by saying, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. Friends, who are you more worried about? For Latimer, his ultimate allegiance was not to the king of England, but to King Jesus. He did not bow the knee to any king in this world. He bowed his will only to the king of kings. May yours be as well this day. As our sovereign God exalts his suffering servant to kingship to save the world through sin, from sin, may you submit your life to him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would know your son is king. Holy Spirit, convict us of ways we are living in active, open rebellion against the king of kings. Give us the fear that we would turn from our sins and know this one true and living King. For if we do not turn, we will not be saved, but we will face judgment. Save us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.